Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. The cool cats are back, Andy and yours truly, Paul, your duo for the Go-To-Market Heroes podcast by Notion Capital. We're nearing the end of this epic season, and it was only obvious and natural that after having heard Andy ask this question to all of our guests, I would turn it around towards him. Andy, who are your heroes? Anyone that has either inspired you to become the best version of yourself or brought you up the ladder of your career, or I don't know, a mentor maybe. Do you have any heroes, Andy? Paul, you're turning my questions back on me. This is painful now, you know? (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. I'll give you quickly a couple of heroes. I think the easy one to say is Jobs. I think Steve Jobs was like a one of a kind. And it's in particular his lessons on marketing. Yeah, the lessons on marketing and the way that he put those campaigns together, the 1984 campaign, how he relaunched the Mac, how he introduced the iPhone. Those are just like lessons in communication. Huge lessons there. I think behind that, though, there's a couple of unsung heroes that got us there. So a big influence in his life was Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. Yeah, I actually met him. Super oh, you cool met guy. him? Yeah, in Hawaii years ago, like more than 12 years ago or something. Super cool guy. Paul, this story just gets getting better. You meet Nolan Bushnell in Hawaii? Really? Yes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> That's for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the podcast of where did you meet your hero, the coolest place, yeah? I thought you were then going to say he was in the Chuck E. Cheese, which is the restaurant <laughs> chain that he founded as well. So I love Nolan Bushnell because he created a lot of the Valley culture, you know, his working practices, the way he thought about innovation, et cetera, I I thought was great. And then our local hero, and he's a guy who really shies away from the limelight. And I really hope that he does something to kind of tell the story of his life was Clive Sinclair. By all Mm -hmm. accounts, he was not an easy person to work with, I hear. I hear that he was quite kind of idiosyncratic, but some of the stuff that he did, he was a great believer in computing for the masses, you know, and I I think he did just an amazing job of thinking about how can we get things down to a price point where as many people as possible can do computing. And the compromises he made in designing the tech were just incredible. Like, so let me tell you one quick story. The ZX80's first ever computer in 1980 was so cheap to produce that what it did, it shared all of its interrupt lines in terms of refreshing the keyboard and refreshing the TV. So every time you press the button, it would blink on the TV, the display, okay? Because it couldn't do both at once. And I became so attuned to it that I used to blink with the display to such an extent that my mother actually thought there was something wrong with me and was ready to take me to the doctors. And I was trying to explain to her, it's not me, it's the computer. And so you can imagine her response is like, really? Why are you just blinking at it all the time, you know? So anyway, that's, I think, a couple of my heroes. You were a trendsetter, though, because that excuse, it's not me, it's the computer, has been used since then by pretty much everyone. <laughs> not me, it's the computer. <laughs> anyway, let's yeah. go to our hero of the day. We're recording with plenty of sun to Today here in the UK and our guest has even more of it where he is I'm very jealous which uh, also means that I already know this conversation will be solar so Andy introduce us to our hero of the day please I am super pleased we are joined by Parker Crockford Parker is someone I've known for a little while he's got a great backstory which we're going to ask him about plus I thought what would be great is Parker can help us unpick what is going on in financial services right now because I think as we all see in Europe, there are some big, big companies being created around that space. 
I think there's a lot more to go yet in terms of just white space. And there's some more unicorns that are going to come out of this. So I thought it'd be great to unpick his career and unpick what's going on in Europe. So Parker, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Well, let's get us started. So we were just laughing before we started recording on your LinkedIn. So you kind of have a couple of little phases before you get to the, the financial bit. So how did it all get started? Well, how did it all get started? I think the interesting way that it got started was growing up, little known fact, I used to live very close to the beach and I was just a surfer and a wrestler which I was good enough, but not great enough to either go pro or have any sort of real future. So when I was 17, I told my parents I wasn't going to go straight to college and I was going to take a gap year. And I think that gap year was something unheard of in the U.S. The U.S. is very much about start your career. You want your 2.2 kids, white picket fence, go and get it. And I was standing there telling my parents I didn't want to go straight to school. And they're like, great, you can stay here and work one of your summer jobs of either construction, landscaping, or working in a restaurant. And I was like, that's not really what I had in mind. So I applied to University of Pittsburgh to defer my acceptance a year. And then I applied to do a gap year in Israel and walked into my parents' room one night and went, so Pitt has put me off for a year. I've been accepted to this program and I'll be in Israel for the next year. And so that's so where I kickstarted my internationalness and moving out and away from, let's say, the U.S. cultural experience that most of my friends and family have had. You've been all over the place. You're in, are you in Spain right now? Yes. And you've lived in London. Yeah. So what was the kind of geographic coverage of Parker and how did that end up in tech then? Oh, that's a good question. So it's interesting. I ended up in Israel for my last semester of college because in the U.S., you do four years and you're supposed to do your last two years with a major. But the way that I had done this gap year and some series of things, I just had 15 credits of electives. And Pitt had a policy of you couldn't take your last 15 credits abroad or I had to be at Pitt because it was supposed to be your major. But I could have taken underwater basket weaving and graduated. I could just do whatever I want. So I said, let me go abroad. Let me go back to Israel and let me graduate and I'll send my credits back. And they're like, yeah, you go and do a semester at Hebrew University. So I did lived in Israel, did a program there and worked for an international nonprofit. And so at the end of that experience, I could either have gone into the Israeli army, which my mother said over her dead body, or I could go and work in Romania for a year. So I went from Pittsburgh to Israel to Romania And then my sister was getting married and I'm a triplet and I had been abroad for about two and a half years at that point. She said, you have to come back. So I came back with a political fundraiser in Philadelphia and Atlanta. And in my mid 20s, I met a girl, as you do, and she was from London. And back then you could just apply to get a visa. And I was young enough made enough money, spoke the right languages that I got a highly skilled visa to come work in the UK. When I got to the UK, I was told by the fundraising mechanisms of the UK that because I had zero experience in the UK, that my skill set of fundraising and selling was 100% untransferable to the UK market. And it's not like I got that once. I got that like four or five times where people are just like, you'll never be able to do it here. And I went, Okay, this is awkward. This is also at like the bottom of 2007, 2008, like Lehman Brothers have just collapsed. And I followed this girl to the UK. My parents are thrilled with me. Sarcasm, not giving up a great career in the US. And the tech sector was the only one that would take a fun on me. I'd already been getting interested in it, always doing it and realized that one sales was somewhat of a dirty word. Tech didn't really exist in London at that point in time. 
And I was determined to prove all these people wrong that I couldn't adapt to European UK culture as a, as a dumb American. So I think I've done that, but yeah, it was a very interesting sort of, yeah. I didn't realize you were one of triplets as well either. And by the yeah. way, the triplets always say who was first, second, third, by the way, in terms of oldest, middle, youngest. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whatever the dynamics of the oldest, the middle child and the baby, no matter if it's by seconds, because that's what it is. I'm the baby by literally four or five seconds. And yeah, I was treated as like I was the baby by years. <laughs> and so my sister is the responsible older one who hates conflict and wants to keep the family together. And my brother is the wonderful middle child. And he was a U.S. Navy pilot and now is an investment banker. So he is. Wow. Yeah. We've all played to our roles here. But yeah, we were uh, one pregnancy, one family. The best way to do it. <laughs> wow. So let's switch to Europe. So the European tech scene now, we're creating some very big, I used to say reg tech, and I think I need to start saying reg tech because it's regulation tech. So I need to say yeah. reg tech. And reg tech. Reg yes. tech and payments. But there's a lot of spaces here that are being created. How do you see Europe's market right now? Or maybe even just the UK. And then we can compare it to the US because I'd love yeah. to kind of know the, for the listeners to kind of understand what you see in terms of the differences, especially the speed and unbundling as to how that's going. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I think if we start from the UK, it has really, for Europe, triggered that that explosion of the fintech because the FCA had to push out a new sort of being or the way that it wanted to set itself up, that it wanted to promote competition and innovation because in the UK market, there was not a lot of competition. There was only a core set of banks. And when I say competition, we're talking about B2C. And I think that's one of the interesting things right now that we're seeing in Europe versus the US. Europe has really started as being first off a B2C sort of go-to-market strategy, or that's where the first sort of big unicorns are, the Revolut, the Monzos, the Wise, the N26 in Germany. But everything's been on that side of it. Whereas on the American side, you have a mix of not only the B2Cs, but you have a much bigger grouping of the B2B fintechs as a service coming out into the market. But I think it was that push by the FCA to try to make it for a consumer point of view, a much more competitive landscape and really promoted the ability for fintechs to come to the market, get their licenses and really stand up against the traditional banks in the market. And then that kind of spawned this whole movement around open banking, I recall. You know, I remember going to quite a few events over the years. It feels like there are flavors of open banking. How do you see that as an initiative progressing right now? So, I mean, it depends on where you're coming from. From payments, where you have PSC2, which is to make more secure payment transactions, versus open banking that was, again, trying to be privacy-centric and more secure. Because originally, the way that these fintechs were sort of getting your data out of your core bank was screen scraping. So literally you would hand them your username and password and they would log in for you and just pull all the data out of your out of your system. Whereas now it's a much more programmatic API based side of that programming. And so they're merging into one, but there doesn't seem to be a huge winner. And I think it's this interesting piece of how do you transfer financial data in a more privacy centric, secure way? 
in the market where it allows anyone to not have to have a relationship with an end bank, but then use all your data, use all your customers to create a value added service on top of it, or use it as a way to slowly or rapidly pull a user into a new new service or experience. Yeah. Those value-added services that you talk about, because I, I see some of them all the way from things such as um, smart banking with benefits, i.e. we're going to look at your payment profile and say, hey, you could get a better mortgage or you could have better life insurance or have you thought about this savings plan? What are you seeing kind of on the innovative end of the schedule, schedule should I say, that are using that data? Oh, man. Well, I think there's a couple different things here. One, I think it comes down to automation and speed, right? At the end of the day, if you look at the way regulation is set up, one, it's your KYC, which means know your customer. The second piece is your, your privacy. And the third piece is you're not taking advantage of customers in a way that you're offering them either credit or a loan or any other sort of, let's say, other financial product or service. And each one of those from a traditional bank point of view has a lot of challenges and pain of it's all been built out manually. And you're trying to create a way of actually being able to provide her just a better experience with a better UI that fits the user expectation. And so like at the beginning, when I was working at Judah Payments, we worked with the likes of Revolut and Monzo and all they are offering out to the market originally, which is a better user experience with a prepaid debit card. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. And the way that they built and their business models have all been around it. Originally, their go-to-markets were about taking part of the interchange and trying to offer, let's say, a better sort of service or features or something that you can offer to an end user. But there's only limited things they could do because they're not a bank and they're not financially regulated. Just as a real-time example right now, Chime, which is the leading U.S. fintech, has been forced by the state of California regulators to stop using the word bank in their marketing because they're not a bank. They're using someone else's licenses and giving a better UI experience to another banking license. And so I think that's when you look at sort of the innovative piece here in what open banking does and a lot of these other conversations right now is how are you taking from the user experience, providing that real time sort of validation that, oh, I have an account. Oh, I see my money there. Oh, I can do it. It's all these different pieces are just allowing that to move much quicker and do it at scale so that I can download an app enter my information, and within two to three minutes, I have an account and I can start using the app. So if we look at the way that apps have developed, the fintechs are having to keep up with that sort of seamless experience and speed that you get if you download the Uber app, right? Like they've tried to move it directly into that same behavior of saying, well, everything is instant for you and instant gratification. So I think everything then is trying to keep up with that speed of the user experience, of never having a spinning dial and we can talk about our time at Unfido together, you know, compared to like the user experience of what the U.S. wanted compared to what Europe wanted when it came to that, the risk threshold of those companies and what does success look like and everything else. But I think it's for me, anything there in the market is is looking to help that user move quicker and get to spending money on a platform faster. So the time I've spent with you, you have also been deep in kind of emerging policy, emerging regulation. and that always felt like it was lagging a bit behind the tech. Or sometimes it kind of came along and caught tech by surprise. So how's the kind of regulation side evolving, do you think? And I'm thinking just Europe at the moment. You know, are there, yeah. are there things out there that people should be either worried about 
i.e. we're building ahead of regulation or maybe even the other way around. Yeah, I mean, if we're looking at Europe, I think one, if we're looking from fintech as a whole, I think they've matured much better to engage the regulators in a way that they weren't six years ago. Like when I started in on Fido, engaging with a regulator was just like, well, we don't want to stick our head up above the bear pit and get targeted. Right. And so like when I always spoke to everyone, I was like, well, we're a reg tech, meaning we're not regulated, but we help our clients be compliant with the regulation. And we were doing things in a very new and different world. But the amazing thing about Europe is it's far ahead when it comes to a lot of its regulation. Right. And a lot of the pieces that are moving forward. So, you know, you have the AML 6 directive that's come out that's really trying to push things into a way that makes it remote and digital. You look at everything that the EU is doing, trying to make it self-competitive across its region. And compared to where when you and I first met, compared to now, every fintech is engaging in the conversation, whereas previously they weren't. So a great example is the FCA has been going through a piece around the future of the buy now, pay later loan platform, right? So an unsecured loan or a, a microloan in the UK is an unregulated space right now, right? Like anyone can set up, anyone can offer, anyone can do it, but the FCA is going to be issuing the first regulation in the space. Now, when I was working with Unfido, no one would have engaged in that five years ago. Now, if you look at the comments that have come in, everyone was involved in the process. Every company commented on it. Everyone is trying to influence in the what's going to be best for the industry and the end user. And so I think that's a great example of sort of Europe is so proactive to become competitive because it can be because the FCA in the UK, you have one regulator in the UK. Germany, you have one regulator. Everywhere there's a regulator, there is sort of a broad network that sits over it, but you're able to sort of engage and attempt to influence. And so I think that enables a lot of this sort of innovation in Europe that you may not see in, in the US, but the fintechs now engage in it. I think every major fintech now has a head of government policy. Whereas when I first started talking to the Unfido clients, Everyone's like, yeah, can you please go talk to the regulators for us? We're too scared to go do it. And I was like, yeah, well, we'll have a conversation with them because we were doing something new that was in a gray area. It had a potential of becoming frowned on by the regulators, but we advocated that this is the future and they should engage with it. And the European Union and FCA have really took that on, but the fintechs now engage in it in a very proactive way, yeah. which I think is great for the ecosystem. Yeah, the conversations do feel much more mature now. And I think there's a healthy dialogue instead of a, I was going to say a skepticism, but kind of like, hey, I don't think we talk the same language. There was a lot of that going on in terms of the evolution of tech. Just to move to the US as well, I'm going to ask you two really unfair questions here and see what you think. Okay. All right. Number one is, how does a company like Stripe come along in the US as such an enormous company? What was the gap they filled there? You know, to me, looking from Europe to the US, I look at it and think, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting company, but it's enormous now. Oh, man. Look, they filled a gap, and I'm in a lot of conversations right now with European companies around this. They're in a gap that saw, one, the internet booming, right? And e-commerce, if you look at the arc of payments and where that's gone, the piece that they saw was the challenge of integrating into a very old tech stack. So as a platform, as a payment platform, they're not that regulated, right? I mean, they have certain requirements they need to fulfill, but that is driven to them by Visa and MasterCard. And so as they saw sort of the e-commerce boom and they saw what was coming out of the valley as sort of these new mobile services, that to integrate into any one of these platforms was horrible and painful. 
And so they came out and the simplest thing, you know, and I was thinking about the, the question asked, who were your heroes? And I think the, the two brothers who launched Stripe are very high up there for me because they took an incredibly horrible, complex, deep knowledge problem and went, we have it. Don't worry about it. You're a techie. Just focus on that and we'll give you the tools that make your lives easier and we allow you to get to market faster. And that was it. Because it was just, if you look at what they're offering, it's it's incredibly complex, but they just put an incredibly simple API over top of it. And they were really the first company to do that. You have Addy in here in Europe, who is a full stack payment provider, right? That's, you know, you could say one of the challenges with Stripe is they're still on other platforms rails, whereas Addy is that full stack, but you can't compete with how simple, easy, and automated Stripe is. So they made it easy for any techie to start accepting payments. And I think it sounds simple when you say it like that, but if you know payments, it's incredibly difficult to do. Well, the bird song behind you, did that start when we started talking about Stripe? There you go. The birds start singing. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It is one of my... Yeah, I mean, it's if I had to have like a love affair, it would be with with Stripe. So they've built an incredibly large business off of something that shouldn't be incredibly large. Yeah, or it's very hard to do, and they've done it with the simple messaging. Now they're like it's a challenge of like what do you say Google is right? Google is this huge thing, but what did they start with? They started with just the most optimized, best search on the planet, and it was that simple, and that was it, right? What did Stripe start off with? Accepting payments. That's all they did. That's all you could do with them is just do payments. You couldn't do any of the fraud. You couldn't do any of the checkout. You couldn't launch your own business through them. You couldn't, I mean, the whole sort of value add that they're doing on the other side of it, but they literally did one thing and they did it better than anyone else in the market. And then they've gone adjacently out. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do, especially in a B2B space or it's incredibly technical below it, where you get these super nerds that want to tell you everything about it. But I'm like, does the end buyer care? They just want to make sure that they get more checkouts. They get more people buying stuff on their platform. That's all they care about. They don't care what the plumbing is. They just want to know when they turn on the faucet, the water comes out and it goes down the drain. And that's the end of the conversation. We just need to do a little bit of translation for everybody. Faucet is tap in many countries. So just... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sometimes they're... Mar- you, you're living in Spain. Come on, get with the local lingo. Well, maybe you know what it is in Spanish. I don't know. So this is the hardest question, okay? Because we've just come off the Bitcoin event and I saw some slightly kind of crazy presentations going on there. So um, what is going on with crypto, Parker? You've been, I'd say, more than toe into this space. You've tested the waters. I have tested the waters. I spent time with without this, that uh, you know, as a crypto custody provider. Look, I think there's a lot of things that need to happen. One, from a regulatory point of view, because in that crypto space, and I'll geek out here a bit, and you can pull me back, is there's really two places you can be in crypto. You can be custodial or non-custodial, meaning when you set up a wallet, which isn't really a wallet, and we could dive into that in another conversation, but you have a recovery kit. And that recovery kit, in essence, is your unique password to say that you own this wallet. And so either the user can own that, or you can have a trusted institutional third party that owns that. And so the user can reset it, they have controls over it, but by doing that, there's a higher level of understanding who the end user is. So if you look at Germany, Germany has launched and created their own crypto custody license, which requires any digital asset in Germany to be sat with that. So you can't 
run a business now in Germany and be non-custodial. And I think that type of regulation is going to permeate through Europe. And you see in the U.S. that they're starting to think about how how to do this. Then let's not get started on sort of the stuff that's coming out of out of the Far East where everyone is applying for a crypto license. And so I think that's the first port of call to make this more legitimate as a service of the regulators being confident that if I have a crypto wallet, you know, it's my wallet. You can identify that it's Parker Crockford, not at an anonymous user on chain. So I think it's getting to that point in time where now big institutionals will want to offer it as an asset class because it's being de-risked from a regulatory position and putting in more frameworks around it. Is it going to be a, a future currency or a payment method? And any of those different pieces, are you going to be paying in fractions of Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogcoin or Sushi coin or name what all these other sort of meme currencies are. Thank you, Elon Musk. I think that's going to be a tough one. I feel like it's it has the knock that a lot of this crypto still is the millennials gold rush. But it's one of the few places you can get really high returns right now. Well, the rush is a bit over right now. You saw sort of a peak and it's flattened out, but it hasn't flattened out remotely where it was 12 months ago. So I still think there's a lot of upside. The other side of this conversation, and we can dive into this if you want, is how does blockchain change the way that sort of financial institutions work? Forget cryptocurrency. Does blockchain change that? And right now has the possibility of it, but there's scalability issues using blockchain to go do that. So I think there's, there's going to be a lot more hype and ups and downs before this really gets to something like meaningful and more mainstream than we have today. Yeah, I think crypto is certainly, it's in the mainstream media every day now. You know, just looking at the BBC website this morning, they're talking about countries. I think it was El Salvador taking Bitcoin as payment. They were talking about the Bank of England looking at digital currencies as a national currency. Then there was everything around Tesla taking Bitcoin as payment on cars. You know, there's all sorts of everyday new stories. But the one I'm most interested in is, can I use Bitcoin to buy my NFTs on these new NFT marketplaces that are coming along? Can I bid on the Charlie Bit My Finger video and pay, pay with crypto? Because when all of this comes together, we're in this new hyper-connected world, I tell you. It's just incredible, I think. Yeah. I mean, the Chrissy's will let you do that in New York. You can buy with Ethereum or, or Bitcoin on their NFTs. I think the most interesting on the NFT space is the continuous percentage. If I create a piece of content and I sell it off to someone, I get the residuals of that. So, you know, the first the first major, the one that went for like the third largest sell, and I forget what it's called, but the amazing thing is he did a bunch of things before that with Christie's where he sold off something like a hundred of them each for a dollar on a platform. And then four months later, someone flipped it for 300000 and he got 10% of it. And he sold it for a dollar. And it was just like, can that hype continue? I don't know. But I think for the creator side of it, it's a much more interesting market than I think the actual idea of a different way of being able to earn money and have your, your digital experience or a video actually mean something for you. Because if something goes viral, do you really see the benefit of it? right? Like there's a huge content piece, especially on YouTube. If I take someone else's clip and I put it on my channel, do I pay royalties to that original poster? The answer is no, right? And so does that fix that royalties content problem? I think it probably does. Let's see if like YouTube allows you to put a unique hash on every video you upload, and then you get a part of someone else's ad revenue every time you take it. That would be interesting. 
YouTube, if you're listening, yeah, which they are, because this is the mega podcast here. <laughs> hey, let's we took a detour there. But let's <laughs> yeah. come back to blockchain. I want to scratch on that a bit because I living in the world that I am, I see mostly blockchain being used to basically guarantee the integrity of something intellectual property based. Okay, as opposed to financials at the moment, the way that you just talked about it. So I see it like a supply chain in terms of looking at the governance and ethical stance of a supply chain, say, hey, in supply chains where people supply parts that become subassemblies or become assemblies, how do you make sure that you've got traceability all the way through there? It's interesting the comment you said about it could change things for financials. Talk more a little bit more about how you see that going. Yeah, so there's two ways it works. And I think the one you're knocking on here is in the issuing of a digital asset, you, in essence, put a contract together to, to sell it, right? And so it's saying, here's a contract. It's backed by X, either it's backed by like a, a regulator approves it, like in Germany, to say, I'm selling this digital asset. This is what it's worth. This is sort of everything that goes around that. And then that transaction is just done from a smart contract. That's really interesting because that allows you to really where the value is, is the issuing of that contract and that sale within blockchain off a one-off sort of transaction that becomes really sort of faster, more transparent and cheaper. Now, once if it's an asset that's going to be traded 100 times, 1,000 times, 10,000 times a day, for argument's sake, that's where the scalability right now isn't there. And so most of this stuff... Most of these platforms are built off Ethereum. And the challenge with Ethereum right now is every time I want to put something onto chain, I have to pay a gas fee, right? And that gas fee is has been getting up to a thousand plus euros per transaction. That is not as cheap or as efficient as if I just got someone else to do it off chain, as they say. And so to be able to sort of have that gas fee get to a point where it's scalable fast enough, it's something that the Ethereum as a network and as a platform has been working incredibly hard to do, where they're looking at launching something called Ethereum 2, which really takes this gas fee problem to shrink it down to allow you to sort of do it at scale. Because in essence, what happened is Ethereum is getting so busy that you have miners that are taking a node, putting it onto the blockchain, and you have to pay the miners to include your transaction in their node. And so if there is tons of activity, they're going to make you pay more to have that node put on and be included onto the blockchain. So that's where this price escalation is. Ethereum is actually, because it's gotten so busy, everyone's putting all these different sort of protocols on top of it that to get something publicly on chain costs a lot more money than it used to. So you have everyone who's trying to do like sort of different types of blockchains that are more private. So it allows you to do more high volume transactions and only put what is necessary onto a public ledger. But then if you're a real diehard blockchain person that doesn't really allow you to have the benefits of being fully transparent, fully out there in the market, where then I'm still having to trust a corporation that they have an internal ledger, it can't be changed, but I can't audit it at free will. But right now you can't run a high volume transaction business on Ethereum because it just costs a ton of money to do that. So the business cases for running these infrastructures are going away. And so a lot of people are putting it onto like layer two solutions, which in essence just takes it off. It's the same technology and everyone's waiting and hoping for like the next Ethereum 2.0 to come out, which solves this gas fee challenge in the market. Yeah. 
Just circling back to where we started. So the big incumbent banks, you know, the big kind of Goliaths of the market, how are they acting and how should they react to all of this change that's going on? You know, because to them, they're regulated, they're big, they haven't got first mover advantage, they're global, so they're covered by lots of regulation. How do you see their response or what would you think they should be doing? Now, are we talking about like the overall fintech market or are we talking about blockchain? I think the overall fintech market. So there's actually an interesting article that was written and uh, sifted today when we're recording this that there seems to be a sea change that banks are now seeing fintechs as true partners and not in a way of competition and or like we'll get them close, we'll pull them in, and then we'll just slow them down as we build our own or try to be that sort of competitive thing on the side that I've experienced several times in the market. And so I think there's just things they can't compete with, right? They can't compete with being a bit more flexible on their regulation because I'm convinced, and you've seen this like N26 had another sort of ruling from Boffin about their behaviors around (laughs) what they do that they're just going to be a bit looser. I'm convinced every fintech is one or two calls away from some sort of fine because you got to move quickly. And especially when you start going to scale, things are going to break. But the challenge is, should they be investing in these platforms or should they be trying to use these platforms as sort of extensions? I still think they have a ways to go before they really see them as extensions. There are a couple of good examples in the market, but you're seeing more activity, especially, you know, the last round that Updesk took an extension, their Series A was from was from AB and Ambrose, one of the biggest banks in Europe and has a very big brokerage arm themselves. And in essence, they are investing in somewhat of a drug competitor, but they know, are they going to be able to build what an Updesk can build from a sleek new API compared to what their legacy and their compliance and risk teams are going to allow them to. So I think they're getting the right idea by investing and then using that to sort of try to pull them as providers. But I still think we're a couple cycles away where the banks start to feel comfortable with it. Hey, this show is called Go to Market Heroes. And we can combine the two, Go to Market and Heroes. So you've mentioned the Stripe founders. Yes. Who else do you think have just really nailed this in terms of go to market and the proposition to the market? Yeah, so I'm a I'm a B2B guy, if you haven't noticed. And for me, it comes down to category creation and doing incredibly well. And this feels cliche, but for me, it's Salesforce and Bernie, like to be able to completely change the behavior of and owning a problem and, and stating it in the market and owning it thoroughly and labeling it and having people realize like, oh, this is a much more painful problem than it is. Whereas I think like the Stripe Brothers did it from like an opportunity point of view. So there's that other side where you're that disruptive new player in the market and you really want companies to think about doing things different. And I think there's very few examples of not only creating a new category, but to doing it in a more confrontational, but aggressive, positive way that that Salesforce has done. And obviously them being obsessed with their customers. So for me, that's that's the other one, which feels like both of them are cliche and people I'm sure will yell at me in the comments about that, but that's okay. <laughs> Listen, we've had two really, really good customer success and chief customer officer leaders on. So we have Pat Phelan come on from GoCardless. And we had Rav Dhaliwal, who's ex-Salesforce and Yammer and Zendesk and Slack. You know, the one thing that came screaming out from that is they're basically saying, 
they took the weakness of the old world to become a positive in the new world, which is in the old world, it's like, thank you for the money. Here's the license. Good luck implementing it. Yeah. In the new world, it's like we're accountable every single year to make sure that you're still happy using this service. Yeah. And just change the value equation. So they were talking through kind of how they make sure that not only do you keep customers, but you grow customers, that customer centricity and advocacy just keeps shining through in every interaction. So, well, listen, thank you so much. It's been great having you on quite a few things to unpick there as well. Thank you for telling us that you are part of triplets and you're the youngest. I can now kind of meet your family and with confidence say you're the baby. So that's great. (laughs) It's a blessing and a burden all at the same time. Andy, you say Restech or Rectech. So my question is GIF or JIF then? (laughs) Oh, you see, these are... These are all tough questions, aren't they? I'm a Giffy. Where do you land, Andy? I'm a Gif. Okay. A Gif. I would never have said Reg Tech. I don't know. I think it's the name Reg. Maybe I thought maybe it was Reginald Tech. You know, I wasn't quite sure. And how long did you spend it on Fido where (laughs) Reg Tech was like our drumbeat for years? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is that what it was? (laughs) It's not our (laughs) name. Thank you, Parker. Thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you.